We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Dr. Leah Gunning Francis is the Vice President for Academic Affairs and Dean of the Faculty at Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis, Indiana. During the Ferguson Uprising in 2014, Dr. Gunning Francis was serving as the Associate Dean for Contextual Education and Assistant Professor of Christian Education at Eden Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. As a result, she wrote the book, Ferguson and Faith, Sparking Leadership and Awakening Community. In the book, she interviewed more than two dozen clergy and young activists who were actively involved in the movement for racial justice in Ferguson and beyond. Dr. Gunning Francis earned a Bachelor of Science degree in marketing from Hampton University, a Master of Divinity degree from the Candler School of Theology, and a Doctor of Philosophy degree from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. A native of New Jersey, Dr. Gunning Francis is married to Reverend Rodney Francis and they live in Indianapolis with their tween-aged children. In the end of her book, she writes a message as relevant today as it was during her book's release in 2015. And she writes, the fight for racial justice emerges out of the fight for human dignity. If there is any group of people who should be compelled to join this fight, it is the people who call themselves children of God. Staying awake to the injustices that have been revealed through the Ferguson-related events is a critical task for communities of faith. Our connectedness to our brothers and sisters is rooted in our connectedness to God, for we are all God's children. And in the words of civil rights freedom fighter Ella Baker, until the killing of black men, black mother's sons, becomes as important to the rest of the country as the killing of a white mother's son, we who believe in freedom cannot rest until this happens. Dr. Gunning Francis, thank you for your work and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. So one thing we love to begin with is just maybe a memory of silence, an early memory, or even a recent memory. And I wonder if you might be willing to share just a memory of silence when you recognized the significance or power of silence in your life. Sure, I'm happy to. My mind immediately goes back to my childhood, around six or seven years old, when we used to spend quite a bit of time by the Jersey Shore. I'm from New Jersey, and we lived about an hour and a half away from the shore and would go down the shore, as New Jerseyans say. And I just remember so distinctly going and sitting on the beach with my parents, my sister, playing, going into the ocean. I can hear the sound of the waves, smell the salt water in the air and the seagulls chirping all around me. And sitting in that space, even as a young child, just absorbing all of it. While yes, there were times of playing, but also times of silence and just being in complete awe of being able to take all of that into myself and seeing myself as a part of 
what was happening all around me was such a profound time for me. That's beautiful. And along with that, has that silence been a part of, I guess, just your life's discernment process or your spiritual journey or experience? It really has been. And you know, my love for uh, expansive bodies of water, I think, comes out of that. <laughs> you know, living now in Indiana, while there are many good things about living here, we're kind of landlocked in so many ways. And I feel myself constantly yearning for um, encountering silence in that type of a space. But since I can't do that regularly, you know, I do find other ways of still valuing um, that time to settle down, quiet down, to listen, to feel, to hear. You know, oftentimes we talk about entering the silence moments as centering oneself, which is, you know, kind of bringing us back to our center. For me, I find these times of going into silence of, yes, centering myself, but also grounding myself, grounding myself in what I'm feeling, what I'm hearing, what I'm sensing, grounding myself in the moment of what's happening right now and what's happening around me. So absolutely, I have found that to be essential for me, as um, I remember to uh, try to, while, while seeking to engage the world in so many ways, whether the engagement is through work, whether it's with my family and friends, um, but also remembering how essential it is to find moments, even if they are just moments, <laughs> of quiet, of solitude, of grounding myself, reconnecting with myself, so that I can be able to think more clearly, listen more clearly, and engage faithfully. That is so lovely. Uh, and it, it sparks me to ask, and I'm trying to articulate, I'm trying to figure out how I want to articulate this, but your answer is so rich and evocative of place. You keep talking about grounding, of, of finding that center. It's so embodied and so tangible. And, and what I, why I love that is because a lot of people, when they hear the word silence, it seems like an abstraction or something. Mm -hmm. And what you've just described is it's the opposite of that. It is so tangible. It is so embodied. It's so present. And I, it's that same embodiment that I found in your book. What you're describing here about a body of water and, and the call of the birds, I felt like it was interwoven in your, the story of your experience and your interaction at Ferguson and, and what you saw there and what you heard there, that you listened deeply and, and felt called to that. And I'm wondering, does that make sense or am I reading too much into that? Is it, because it seems to me that this is a book about bodies and communities. And that silent space speaks deeply. Am I reading into that or is that right? What you're saying is definitely resonating with me because one of the ways I like to describe this book is I preface it by saying, you know, people around the world saw the images of the tanks and the tear gas and the riot police and the quick trip burning. You know, they saw all of those images, 
but most people never saw the images that were connected to the stories that are told in Ferguson and Faith. And so what I tried to do in entering uh, this work of writing about it and just a quick story as to how we even got here in the first place. When Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri on August 9th, 2014, I happened to be on sabbatical that semester. And part of my work that semester was to write a book about the stereotyping of young black men and the need to change the imaging, the messaging, um, the importance of privileging black mothers' voices in that work because so often every time I turned on the television and seeing people talk about young black men on you know, save, meet the press and, and uh, CNN roundtables, I never saw a black mother at the table. Have you? Like I only would see a black mother at the table when God forbid her child had been harmed or worse killed, but never as a thought leader, never as someone with agency, et cetera. And so, um, you know, that all that narrative needed to change. So I was on sabbatical to write a book about that. And then Michael Brown was killed. And I, like many, found myself engaged in a lot of the protests, uh, my husband was pastoring a church in St. Louis, so we were both deeply connected with the faith community in St. Louis. And so we're both, you know, engaging in lots of different kinds of ways, and this is happening over months. And then at the end of November, our friends at Chalice Press reached out to me and said, oh, Dr. Francis, we know you've been engaged in the work. Would you be willing to write a book on clergy involvement in Ferguson? And so I respond by saying, um, gosh, had I known I was going to be writing a book about this, I would have been taking more pictures, doing interviews, all of that, but that's not why I engaged the movement. So, you know, here we are. Obviously, I said yes and sought out then to collect interviews and to kind of begin the retelling of the stories that have happened and the, and the collection of pictures. And as you all can relate to, I'm sure, once you hear one story that wants you to know more from another person about something else, you pick up on a thread that goes someplace else. And what I found was people who I, I had seen doing these very things of embodiment, as you've named, as bringing their full selves into this mind, body, and spirit, and being able to have the privilege of sharing these stories, these images with the world have been very transformative in lots of different spaces. I've done very, um, I've been very privileged to do a lot of interviews, lectures, workshops, sermons over the past six years on this. And inevitably somebody says to me, I had no idea. You know, I didn't know that these kinds of things were happening. So yes, you know, the people you heard from in Ferguson Faith and so many more that weren't, who's, you know, who, whose stories weren't told in Ferguson and Faith were doing just what you said, really putting their bodies on the line, bringing their whole selves to include how they understood this work as integral to their lives of faith. I, I don't have a question, but I just want to comment on the fact of just the, the, the beautiful imagery in this, right? You keep talking about groundedness as that place of silence and this also place of connection. And I think about that 
that rootedness and groundedness that shows us our innate connectivity to each other. And I think that's that's so revealed in your book in the way that you, yeah, you just reveal the power of, of shared power and not a singular leader, um, the way that you interviewed multiple people and just pointed to the movement of the collective, the, the power of an embodied collective when they step forward together out of that deep rootedness, out of that connectivity. It's just so, so powerful. But again, no, no question. I appreciate that because when you take a look at the collective, just the one that's described in Ferguson and Faith, you see people that are young, that are not so young, that are black, that are white, uh, that are um, gay, that are straight. You know, you, you see the kind of collective that we know to be true about who engages in movements for racial justice, that it is a broad spectrum of people. You see people of various faith traditions, of uh, various denominations within the Christian faith. And that is essential to telling the truth about how people are entering this space and who is entering this space with their full selves. And so oftentimes people would say, oh, there's no leader in this movement. Who's in charge? Where's Dr. King? Somebody needs to go wake him up. What's going on here? Nobody said, and it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. You're not seeing nor hearing in a way that will allow you to see and hear what's really happening. No, there is no one single leader. And oh, by the way, history will correct our thinking about that in that even with Dr. King, he was not the sole single leader of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, right? There were many people that, that provided significant leadership that laid the groundwork for where we are today. So uh, I would always laugh. So often we would see some of the younger activists, because I had to put away my young cool card some years ago, and they would say, <laughs> you know, they'd have shirts going, this ain't your daddy's civil rights movement. This ain't your mama's civil rights movement. And I'd kind of like hold up that little finger and go, well, actually it is in many ways because as in the civil rights movement, who was out in the forefront? Young people. You know, the SNCC, the Student Nonviolent uh, Coordinating Committee, like we would not be here right now talking about this if it were not for SNCC. I'm convinced of that. This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. Um, and so many other ways in which young people, high school students, college students, we remember the Children's March in Birmingham uh, and so many others who put it all on the line to say, we're not having it. And so fast forward to Ferguson 
you saw the same thing where it wasn't about, okay, let's meet and elect a leader, but rather, no, we're just going to show up. We're going to bring our full selves. We're going to stand up and we're going to be relentless with this. And out of that, you saw people going and you saw people grounding themselves within what was in what was happening and being able to lead out of that space. And out of that space of oneself, you know, I would always encourage people and still to this day to do, you know, look for the leader within. Stop looking out and around for this mythical figure to come and save the day. The Calvary is not coming. We need to call out the leader from within and join hands and join hearts and, and bring the best, the best of our collective thinking together to work together to advance the cause for racial justice. And, and Dr. Gunning Francis, do you think that that is what makes a public mystic and what makes public mystics today, not only the willingness to, to step out and step forth, but also that groundedness and that connectivity, whether it be to our ancestors, to each other, to common humanity, that groundedness that allows people to step out and be public mystics. I think that's very true. And as people step out, an example from something that happened during the movement for racial justice in Ferguson, I distinctly remember some of the clergy telling me when we stepped out on those streets, when we stepped down out of our pulpits and stepped out into those streets to stand with the many young people who had already been out there for days and some for weeks, they stepped into that space with humility. They stepped into that space, recognizing, acknowledging, we've not been here for you. And that we being the church, that we being communities of faith, that we have not stood up and spoke up for the things that matter for you for your personhood, for who you are. And so in, as part of that sort of public mysticism, if you will, and people living into that and finding the leader within, you know, entering that space with a tremendous amount of humility, recognizing the brokenness that exists to which we are either a part of by virtue of, you know, being leaders within the church or maybe have done some harm ourselves to people, but whatever that is, it's an opportunity to start anew. And so to see people step out and step into those spaces in that way. Um, one of the uh, funny stories, if you will, is there was a march happening from uh, the Southern part of St. Louis City going towards St. Louis University because in when Ferguson was happening, marches were protests were happening all around the region. It wasn't just in Ferguson. And there was a church in South St. Louis where uh, the pastor opened the doors wide. Reverend Jackie Foster opened the doors wide. The people of the church, you know, where uh, protesters could come in, they could come in for food and water for rest. They opened their sanctuary. People wanted times of silence, meditation, and prayer. So when I say open the doors wide, they were wide. Well, anyway, one day, Reverend Foster, who is a um, middle-aged woman and 
and her husband, and they're, they're both white, and they were marching along in the protests, and uh, there was an elderly African-American male pastor who was also marching along with them. They're all marching. And anybody who's been part of a protest knows that sometimes the language in the protest isn't always clean, if you will. <laughs> sometimes it gets a little spicy. And... <laughs> And, and they're marching and the, the, some of the activists were saying things that um, had some curse words in the chants. And so all of a sudden you heard the elderly uh, African-American pastor saying, language, language. And so, <laughs> the, uh, and, and the next thing you know, the people around him are looking like, okay, we'll tamp that down a little bit. But then in the same breath, this pastor said, but the young people have done it. They have done it. They have forged this movement. And so here he was able to come as a grandfatherly figure reminding of language, while at the same time, standing right there, standing up with them, not wagging a finger with them, but standing with and for them. That to me is a wonderful example of somebody sort of being a public mystic where you know, he or she can come out of the essence of who they are and who they understand themselves to be while also joining with the movement for justice that is happening. Dr. Gunning Francis, listening to you speak reminds me of a conversation that I had with the Irish poet, uh, John O'Donohue. And this was uh, over 20 years ago. And he was talking about what he said in his beautiful Irish way, he talked about the unheld conversations. And he was speaking specifically about the conversation between Christianity and Islam. That was kind of what he had in mind. And this is 1998 or 1999. And he says, if Christianity and Islam do not have a conversation that they need to have very soon, there's going to be tremendous damage. And, you know, of course, we've seen what the last 20 years have looked like, and his words had that ring of prophecy about them. But that, that just that concept of the unheld conversation just came to mind as I was listening to you speak. And, of course, I'm thinking about, you know, the horrific death of George Floyd that happened just a few months ago. We're recording this in July of 2020. And almost six years after the murder of Michael Brown, we watch, and of course, how many between, between those two. But it just occurs to me that we've got a serious problem with unheld conversations, that, that these atrocities are continuing to happen. And so I'm curious if you could reflect with us about the conversations that still need to happen and what they might look like and how we you know, and the we, the, the four of us, we, but the we, the, the listeners to this podcast and the community as a whole can make those conversations happen. You know, as we look at the atrocities that we have seen just with the killing of George Floyd coming at the same time of learning about um, the killing of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, when she was at home and under a no-knock warrant for whom she was not the suspect nor anyone in her home, um, she was ambushed and killed. Or a uh, young man, black man, Ahmaud Aubrey, who was jogging, minding his business. You know, I, I power walk every night in my neighborhood. And 
he was doing something very similar, jogging, and was deemed suspicious and killed, which had that echoing of what happened to Trayvon Martin, the young man who was just 17 years old, a teenager, walking home minding his business and killed. And his killer was just agreed to have just been standing his ground. And so um, to see those things happening and then, and I don't want to miss the opportunity because we're also focusing on silence and the role and the value and the benefit of it in our lives, um, not only for this work, but holistically. Mr. Cooper, who was in um, Central Park in New York City during the same time in May, who was bird watching. This black man, bird, mind, you talk about silence, you know, the becoming one with nature, the listening, the quiet, watching the birds, minding your business. And the young lady was there with her dog unleashed, which was against the park policy. And he asked her to, um, to leash the dog. And she retorted by, I'm calling the police and proceeds to call the police and become hysterical and say this black man is there threatening her and none of that was true. And so you had all these things that happened within weeks of each other. And when watching Mr. Floyd lie on that Minneapolis pavement with the officer's knee in his neck and he's begging for his life basically and the officer just so casually continues to kill him that was more than many people could take. It was a, a breaking point um, like we've not seen in this era. When we connect all of that to the concept of unheld conversations, what that points to for me is the fact that we need white people having conversations with white people about white supremacy. Black people, other people of color have been screaming about these type of injustices for decades, but they have continued to fall on deaf ears. You know, for example, with Ferguson, we just knew that the worldwide attention that Ferguson garnered that would force police stations and police districts around the country to say, you know what, we need to review our policies. We need to make sure that we are de-escalating situations and not uh, abusing any type of use of force on an unarmed person. But did that happen? No. What did happen? We saw after the killing of Michael Brown, more than 100 black people, black women, black men, black children killed by police officers unarmed black people. When in, in response to the killing of George Floyd here in Indianapolis, I worked with the organization titled Faith in Indiana, faith-based organizing organization, excuse me, here in Indianapolis and reached out to them and said, hey, can we hold a public march in response to what's happening here? We need to take our stand to say this cannot happen. What are we calling on our elected officials in this state to do to make sure that this type of thing does not happen in Indianapolis and that the reforms that need to happen within our policing structures here happen? And they were like, absolutely. And so we ended up having a march downtown 
that drew more than 1,500 people. And when we marched from the state capitol to the city county building, we did a die-in. And what that is, is where people lie on the ground and in silence, in an attempt to really take into themselves the gravity of what it is that we're doing. Yes, the chanting, the marching, the speaking is all good and important, but that moment of lying on the ground in silence, all of these people, over a thousand people on the ground, in the streets, wherever they could get a little bit of space to lie down. And we asked them to lie there for eight minutes and 46 seconds, which was the time that George Floyd laid on the ground pleading for his life. And in that eight minutes and 46 seconds, another person and I took turns reading the names of black men and women and children that have been killed by police since Michael Brown was killed. The unheard conversation, the unheld conversations are by our white brothers and sisters. That's where the conversations need to be held. And for guidance as to what they need to be talking about, go listen to all the tapes, the podcasts, the videos that people have recorded, the newscasts over the years of Black people screaming, pleading for an end to racial terror in particular at the hands of those who are sworn to serve and protect us. This concludes part one of a two-part episode. Stick with us next week when we hear part two. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.